Welcome back to the Secrets of Story podcast. Here is the theme music. Okay, everybody. It's so good to see you all again. We haven't seen you in quite some time. Um, right so now, Matt my looks wife, like a Jawa. I, he's I'm wearing cold. A, a, a brown hoodie, and he looks like like a like a like a wise Jawa. So, guys, if you have been reading the Secrets of Story blog, you know that. Oh boy, we had a big to do when I was writing a series of posts about Get Out, and that inspired James to just go off on a wild flight of fancy, and that led to several posts back and forth about James's flash of insight into the world of storytelling. So, James. <laughs> Anything else to discuss before we start today's topic? No, I'm I'm ready to go. I'm I'm really raring to go on this. I am raring to go as well. Let us rare. Well, let us stop raring. I think we have rared enough. Let the raring cease and let the actual discussing commence. Okay. So should we stick to the traditional format and have me talk about what my original post was? That yeah, yeah. This? Go ahead. So I was talking about the movie Get Out, which is absolutely brilliant. And we were discussing all sorts of permutations of it for a couple weeks on the blog. I was saying, like, oh, it's always good when the hero shows a special skill that allows them to get out of something. There's always going to be a moment at the end when the villain underestimates the hero. And why do they underestimate the hero? And it's like, well, because we know that the hero has some special skill that we've seen they have that the villain doesn't know they have and that causes them to win. And I talked about it's such an odd one in Get Out because... Yes, he has this brilliant insight where once they've strapped him to a chair and are keeping him hypnotized for several days at a time, he finally realizes, oh, I can take this cotton in my armrests and plug up my ears so they'll think I'm hypnotized and I'm not, and then I can kill them all. And I was like, well, okay, so clearly he's being smart and clever in that he does this, but why was he able to do this when no one else was able to do this? And I'm like, well, it's because of this very, what I described, and James gave me pushback on, but what I described as a very odd special skill, which is that we find out that when he was a kid and watching TV and trying not to think about the fact that his mom might have been in an accident, he was nervously scratching at the armrests of the chair he was sitting in. And that later when Rose's mother is hypnotizing him, he starts doing it again, although she doesn't notice this. And then she hypnotizes him and locks him in the basement room. And now it's been well established that he likes to scratch armrests. And when he's stuck there hypnotized for several days, he, of course, scratches them open unconsciously, involuntarily. This turns out to be just the special skill he needs because this allows him to pick the cotton. And I, I was just pointing out, like, oh, isn't this such a bizarre, ironic special skill for him to turn out to have? Well... It was a tossed-off piece. It was not a major magnum opus on my part. But then, oh my gosh, it set James off. So, James, what was your take on this? You talk about special skills being the thing that's needed at like the crucial moment, right? Yeah. But it's not a skill, right, that he has in Get Out. It's an involuntary action. Right. It got me thinking about works and grace in movies. Um, one one it, can tell you went to a Catholic college. One can tell I was raised Catholic. Yes. Uh, um, so let's just talk about the climaxes in general of stories and movies. Um, like a great climax could put a movie over the top. And I looked at a bunch of climaxes and I noticed it's not necessarily crucial to have this kind of climax I'm about to talk about. A lot of movies are great all the way through and just have a workmanlike climax. But I want to talk about a certain kind of climax I think is great that your point about Get Out spurred me to think about. It's a property that I noticed a lot of climaxes that I like have. Stories are essentially religious objects they they come out of religion no they're not but okay they, they are the the, the the first stories were religious rituals that we would do for each other like, like in ancient times and, and we have ancient rituals and processions and we would have ways of communicating things about the divine to each other 
And then over time, you, you, you know, you have these like big stories, these big narratives, like the Bible or something like that. Yeah. that and, and then like over time, you have novels and things and movies. But when we go to a movie or a story, there is still in the DNA of what we're doing a religious impulse. Yeah. Um, th- like we want to be brought into contact with something larger than ourselves. Yes. Um, and we're, we're searching for some kind of meaning that's something that's more than merely mechanical. And a lot of the criticism that people make of some kind of stories is that, oh, that's just a deus ex machina. Like, right? Like the, the right. God comes in and solves everything. And we're, we're all always taught that's the worst, that's the worst. Even though in our experience, we don't really have any experience of a play or a movie or a TV show in which God actually does that. That was like something that the Greeks would do and Aristotle well, hated it and he brought it up. But we don't really Raiders, have any experience of those things. Raiders Lost Ark. I, look, I'm ultimate, coming around to that. I, I uh, see. I'm, I'm stepping in it. So, um, so obviously a, a clumsy or blatant deus ex machina is a bad way to end a story. But maybe those climaxes that folks deride as deus ex machina are just a corruption of or a poor reflection of or a malformed version of a great kind of climax. Maybe the most satisfying kind of climax, the sort of climax that I want to describe here. So okay. I'm trying to clear the area for that. Okay. Uh, um, so Matt makes a big deal about like the hero has to work hard throughout the story and use these pre-established skills to solve problems. Yes. Right. It, 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 all the way up to the climax. But I've noticed a certain kind of climactic moment that doesn't have the hero actively deploying pre-established skills at the crucial moment in the climax. There's a kind of weird power in this kind of climax I want to explore. In this kind of climactic moment, the hero is often curiously passive. And it's some inherent property that they have that gives them the final boost to succeed. In Get Out, like it's this property that he has, yeah. that he is clawing it out. And that's something he cleverly figured out how to do. And once he had the cotton in his hand, he's put it in his ears. All that, that was happens clever. off screen. But let, let, let me give you some examples. In Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, uh-huh. just as you would have them do, Harry and Ron and Hermione work hard to solve the mystery, and then they work hard to get past all the teacher's traps, right? They're mm-hmm. using their pre-established skills. Harry uses broom to fly around and catch the key. Ron uses his chess skills. Hermione uses logic to get past the potions. But after that, when Harry is fearing, facing Quirrell alone, the things that are crucial to having Harry prevail against Quirrell is the fact that Quirrell can't touch Harry without feeling pain. Right. And this isn't a skill of Harry's. It's just a property that he has. It's involuntary. When Harry looks into the mirror of Erised, the Sorcerer's Stone magically drops into his pocket, not because he's being wily or strategic or deploying a clever plan, but because of his pure heart. Let's take. Let's go a step further. In Star Wars, it's not like Luke Skywalker blows up the Death Star only because he had trained so hard with the Force. The only time we saw Luke practice with the Force was once, on the way to Aldron with the remote, and he wasn't even that good at it. The Force is with Luke. It's a property he has. I, I totally disagree with No, hold on. But okay, not a honed skill. We can actually uncover an important rule here. Maybe it's the hero's skills that get them all the way to the climax and working hard. But at the climactic moment, it's an involuntary property that carries them over the goal line. Put in theological terms, Calvinist-style works, arduous and reliant on personal virtue, will get you to the climax, but only Catholic-style grace, free, undeserved, a gratuitous favor from God, can actually clinch the win at the final moment. You need both. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something I have never thought of, would not think of. I was baptized Catholic, but that was the last time I set foot in the Catholic Church. My mom was Catholic, my dad was Methodist. They said, well, what are we really deep inside? They said, well, really deep inside, we're social climbers, so let's become Episcopalian. 
And but then my mom was like, well, but the only the only religion where you can get in trouble for not being declared one at birth is Catholic. So let's go ahead and declare them Catholic at birth. And that's the last time they'll ever set foot in a Catholic church. So I'm not an especially Catholic person. I'm not you especially to Catholic to get I'm this I'm not point. an especially religious person. I certainly never occurred to me what you're talking about. But you made a fairly convincing case on the bog that this tends to happen, that there tends to be these moments of race, as you as you sometimes call them, I think that you take it too far. I'm, I'm not saying it happens every time. Here. Incredibles, Mr. Incredible throws a car at the plane <laughs> and um, Syndrome gets sucked into the propeller. You know, um, in, in uh, How to Train Your Dragon, it's kind of like the, the debased version of this where like you think the hero is dead, but lo and behold, he's alive. Which you know. Which is, 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 is kind of, yeah, but, but you don't know that until yeah. until like the epilogue. But you just see right. the father is weeping, and then the dragon opens his wing, and you see, oh, he's alive. The, he, it's kind of like a Jesus moment. He goes to yeah. the world of death, and then God says, "You know what? You deserve to come back." Right. Uh, um, well, but it, it well, feels let's... like a moment of grace. It's like you put your life in God's hands, and then God or the storyteller says. You passed the test. You graduated this story. This happens in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones works very, very hard to get up to the point where they're going to open the Ark of the Covenant. And then he says, oh, shut your eyes, Marion. And he puts himself in the hands of God. And God does what he will with him. And God judges. Um, he I mean, judges it's... the Nazis and kills them. He judges Indiana Jones and Marion and says they're okay. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this is like a very because passive... they close their eyes because they right, but that's they not do like the right some... thing. They close their eyes. Right, you think that they would have? That's you submitting. Think it's you, submitting to. They're grace. submitting to. Yes, yeah, it's submitting, it's to, submitting God. to God. And just like when Luke is in a sense, when he turns off his computer, uh-huh. he's closing his eyes. Yeah. Um. This is this is submitting to the divine, and I think this goes back to the reason why it's powerful is because stories started as religious things in the same way that universities. I don't really agree with that. In the same way that I mean, just historically, in the same yeah. way that universities started as religious institutions. You know, when the University of Paris or University yeah. of Edinburgh or whatever, and then over time they became just a secular thing. And now yeah. they mostly have, but you go to Harvard and you see religious stuff everywhere, you know. Yeah. The same way, stories started as religious things. Most of the big religions are based in big stories, and yeah. those are the only stories happening back then were the religious not, stories. Not true, but. <laughs> the, the, well, I mean, what are the stories that they... Uh, I mean, the oldest story I've read is Gilgamesh, and Gilgamesh has gods in it, but wouldn't call it a, a religious story. It's a fundamentally religious story, Gilgamesh. It's, a, it's, a, it's about God, it's about the afterlife, it's about death. I've always said that stories are how we teach each other to solve problems. That's what I believe mm-hmm. that stories have always been. Now, it could be that once we believed that you couldn't solve problems without the intervention of God, and that now we do I, I'm feel sorry, that way. I'm not saying it's literally God in these stories. I'm saying we're uh-huh. put. It could be an ersatz kind of thing, like right. the Force or Harry, you know, with it. But basically, they're putting their they're, they're they're in the hands of something more powerful and bigger than their mere skills. It's, yeah. It can't be a mere skill or working hard that gets you past the climax. But so let's look at Alien. Okay, Alien doesn't have its element, right? Can, can I push back on that a little bit? Yeah. What happens in the climax of Alien when she's in the escape ship? She has gotten away. She has decided to blow up the big mining ship that she's in, get mm-hmm. in an escape pod, escapes in an escape pod with the cat, and then once she's in it, and I guess after the main ship is blown up, realizes that the Xeno, Xenobot, what's it called? Just say the alien. Just <laughs> she realizes that the alien is on the ship with her, and it's all been for naught. And so then she has to kill it and knock it out. Of what? The, how, how does she kill it? She knocks it out of an airlock, right? Yeah, but what is what are the sequence of actions that occur? Oh, I don't know. Tell I'll me, tell James. you. She she sees it 
slowly coming out of the wall. It's moving very slowly because it's eaten or something. But it's moving much slower than it usually does. Yeah. She puts on the space suit. Uh-huh. She's like, <sighs> she, she's very nervous, right? Uh-huh. She, what she has to do is she has to let the alien get very close to her, right? Yeah. So that she can turn around and, and shoot the harpoon at it. It's going to blast it out the door. She has to make it think that it can get her mm-hmm. so that she can definitely hit it. Yeah. She only has one shot with this harpoon. Yeah. So she turns her back on the alien. Uh-huh. And she's waiting and waiting, waiting. Finally, she turns around. It's right there. It's about to get her. She opens the door. She shoots the harpoon and she blasts it out. Okay. There is a moment of utter giving yourself up to something there. Now, I'm not saying that this is totally fits my pattern however it is a it has a family resemblance to it and that in a, it, at that moment she's kind of giving herself up to the power of the alien for a moment she's she there's a reason why it's so powerful that she turns her back on it huh. to defeat it yeah the alien just came out and then she said haha we'll cleverly take care of this she opens the door and she blasts it yes that, that, that would not be as satisfying as that she turns her back on it and then you know it's coming up on her. She has to wait for just the right moment. She turns out, it's right there. She blasts it. Like, she puts herself in the power of something else. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it satisfying. Now, is it exactly what I'm talking about? No. no. But it has a family resemblance to it. So let's go ahead. We've jumped too quickly into me poking holes in the theory and finding counterexamples. Let's go ahead and let's have you talk more about what you were saying. Like, So tell me about some of the convincing examples that sort of won me over on the blog. Like, tell me about well, Toy Story. So with Toy Story, you got to work hard to get to the climax, but then from then on, you have to rely on grace. That's what I'm talking about, right? So, yeah, because I was always sort of confused by Toy Story, not confused by it, but I'm like, wow, they're really pushing things on this finale. They really earn the finale. They mm-hmm. earn getting back on the moving van, and then they lose it again. They don't get back on the And then they don't get back on the moving van. I always was sort of like, I'm like, huh, that's an interesting story choice. And not one it's so effective. I always find it a bit frustrating as a as a viewer going like, oh, I feel like they're this is getting a little labored. But you uh, had I, a completely different view on yeah, this. Yeah, well, I mean, you I think were... it speaks for itself, the success of the movie. Oh, no, no, uh, no. Um, I'm not saying that Toy Story is not a great film or that not been wildly successful, rewritten the whole rules of Hollywood. I'm just saying that I was always a bit going like... You know, I'm like, hmm, I wonder why they did that extra beat. And you, sir, have solved the mystery of well, why they you. did that extra well, beat. Well, first of all, what they don't want to get onto, the, their deepest desire is not to get back on the moving truck, is to get back into the car with Andy. Yeah. That's their deepest desire. Uh-huh. Buzz and Woody are working hard to catch up with the moving truck. They're working hard, which is what you want them to always be doing. That The moving truck has all their toy friends on it. If they don't catch up, they'll never find out where Andy's family is moving to. They'll be separated from Andy and their friends forever. Now... Woody and Buzz have done all this. Now, this is like the equivalent of Harry and Ron and Hermione in the teacher's tests. They've commandeered a toy car. They've strapped a firecracker to Buzz's back. They've done all the right things, but they can't light the fuse. All their plans have come to naught, and they're stuck in the middle of the road as the truck drives away. All seems lost, but then Woody is super clever. This is more working hard. He realizes Buzz's helmet can focus sunlight to light the firecracker. It's lit. Our heroes blast off at top speeds. They're catching up with the truck. Now, if Woody and Buzz had caught up with the truck yet, it would have felt clever, right? Yeah. Uh, it w- but it wouldn't have been fully satisfying, uh, even though you think it got belabored after this. But e- I, I wasn't sure it got belabored. Okay. I was just like, um, okay, I'm, I, and I could always tell it worked what mm-hmm. happened. But I was like, hmm, I, I was just as a storyteller, 
I was like, I'm not sure what they're doing here. Why they why they wanted to add an extra beat here beyond what I thought they would want to add. I think it, it wouldn't been, it wouldn't have been fully satisfying in my opinion, even though it technically fulfills some of this dry formula of storytelling. Because for a climax to be fully satisfying. Not just merely clever, not just merely hard work. It requires the final intervention of the narrative equivalent of grace or divine or the finger of God. So after the firecracker is lit, Buzz, carrying Woody, zooms so fast, Woody loses grip of the car that they're on. And so without that ballast, Woody and Buzz zoom off into the sky. Oh, they can't possibly survive. They're going to fall. They're going to shatter on the ground. This is it for them. But then there's this unique, unearned property of Buzz. The fact, not a skill that saves the day. He has wings, thus he can fly. So earlier in the movie, Buzz believed he could fly. Woody said, oh no, Buzz, you can't fly. And Buzz sadly realized, no, he can't fly. But now, falling out of the sky with style, after having touched the face of God, Bud accomplishes flying at last. He fulfills his deepest, most seemingly impossible wish. And then Buzz uses that characteristic to plop right into the open sunroof of Andy's car, reuniting both Buzz and Woody with their beloved Andy. It's a climax. It's not a skill that Buzz had. The first time we saw Buzz fly showing off for the rest of the toys, it worked just because of dumb luck. It was a series of crazy Rube Goldberg coincidences. And the second time, he, like, falls, and he fails ignominiously. He falls down the stairs, and he breaks his arm. But the third time, Buzz flies at this once-in-a-lifetime favor of the gods. Could never happen again, granted after long effort and suffering. So the hero has to work hard to get to that climax. I agree with you with that. But all that hard work puts the hero in the presence of the god. Which it's, is a storyteller, in a way. I mean, it's sort of the opposite of using special skills, because this is the one skill it has been definitively established he does not have. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's so, like, instead of the hero going, like, you have to establish the hero has a skill and then have them use it in the end. This is like, you have to establish a hero absolutely does not have a skill. <laughs> and then they end up using that skill after all in the end. Yeah, totally. So all that hard work puts the hero in the presence of the god. Once the hero is in the presence of the god, it's entirely up to the god, not to the hero, whether the hero succeeds. It's out of Luke's hands whether the force works or not. Harry has to rely on magic deeper than his own skills to ward off Quirrell. Indy and Marion place themselves in the hands of God and say, do what you will. And same thing with Woody and Buzz. So, um, like you said on the blog, what about 124th question for the checklist? This doesn't have to be in every story, uh-huh. but, in, but maybe in some stories it's there and it's worth thinking about. At the end of the climax, after using his or her skills to mostly, but not completely triumph, does the hero benefit from a moment of divine grace? A moment of divine grace. I can't imagine myself actually adding that to my checklist. For one thing, the book is not an e-book. It was traditionally published, and uh, it's a little late to be adding adding leafs uh, <laughs> into uh, into previously published editions. But I think that this is something that you know. So I went through the movies that I've used as examples mm-hmm. on my blog, and I found that I was like, yeah, for about ten of these, I can sort of find this moment. And for mm-hmm. about ten of them, I can't. And Alien was an example of one where I couldn't. But but did you think about the mechanics of that climax? Because if you just thought about like Toy Story, it's like, oh no, they, they use a firecracker, they catch up, they're fine. But I think you have to actually rewatch a climax because it's a, I think, a subtle thing sometimes yeah. that they put themselves in the hands of something higher. Um, and I'm not saying that, it, I want to stress it, that this is a religious point that I'm making right. or that the stories have to be religious. I'm saying that in the DNA of stories, there's an atavistic religious impulse. Uh-huh. Um, and we, a lot of times when we read or watch stories, we're satisfying an atavistic religious impulse. And that's why that this moment works. Yeah. And it's not about solving a problem. It's about putting yourself in the hands of a greater power. Or a greater power smiling upon you. Definitely the fear is that what you're saying is not insufficiently distinguished from deus ex machina. And that deus ex machina, as... Aristotle said 
Now, of course, this is so bizarre that we say like, oh, Aristotle came up with the idea of deus ex machina, but deus ex machina is Latin, and Aristotle <laughs> wrote in Greek, and why do we attribute a Latin phrase to him? Who knows? But of course, the ultimate example of a deus ex machina that does work to a certain extent is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Where Raiders of the Lost Ark is the most obvious deus ex machina in the history of modern literature. You know, Gon literally comes out of the sky in a basket. And, and it's you know, great. And the hero has totally lost, and the villains have totally won, and God just comes there and is like, nope, the opposite is now true. The hero has totally won, the villains have totally lost. And he even unties the ropes, I guess, somehow. <laughs> He's like, I'm not going to have you guys get hit by the fireballs at all, except for one little ember which will land and untie your ropes in and some There's way. a reason why we still watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I don't think that's the reason we still watch Raiders it, it, of the Lost Ark. I, think it, it, I don't it think that's the reason. Ending. I think we watch Rare's Lost Ark to watch him tie a whip onto the front of a truck and then slide under the truck and then climb up back no, on no, the back No, no, this of the is truck. a very Matt Bird thing to say. <laughs> that the, the, Those are all things about working hard to get to the climax. However, the climax, there's a reason why Harry Potter was the book that succeeded and not the million other books about wizards that you throughout think, the years. You think that Harry Potter succeeded because Quarrel couldn't touch him? I think that Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Harry Potter all have this weird thing in common that yeah. there's this moment of the divine in them. And I think it's very interesting. And since they're so successful, I think it's like we shouldn't say they succeed despite that. I say we should investigate why that works so well. I would say that both Rare Lost Stark and Harry Potter succeed despite that. I would say Star Wars I disagree succeeds. 100%. I would say Star Wars succeeds because of it. I think that Star Wars it is a legitimately religiously thrilling moment to have him very actively decide to put the. I think putting the computer away is very key. Mm-hmm. That he puts the computer, you know, he's got a computer there in front of him to help him. He takes the effort, takes the action of putting it away, mm-hmm. and then does the action of closing his eyes. But it's very active. It's something he's trained for religiously. He has deep spiritual training in order to be this way. Nuh-uh. He chooses. We saw to do him it. once. But that stands in for other trainings. It can't because we don't know how long they were in hyperspace. They could have been in hyperspace for two weeks. They, they, they. I don't. Well, the thing is. Right when he's doing that, uh-huh. and he's not very good at it, that in that very same scene, they arrive at the ruins of Alderaan. Natural. There's one scene of it. He he's introduced to something. He he, he he's able to block a couple shots, and yeah. and, and Obi Wan says. Well, you've taken your first step into a larger world. If you think about the prequels and all the shit that Obi Wan had done, yeah. <laughs> you combine you compare it to what they could. Well, Obi Wan is just like. Okay, good job. <laughs> but that's the way movies work. If you you don't want more than one training sequence, you don't want like six. It's not a training sequences. sequence. It's him simply it being is introduced. A training sequence. No, because he never uses it. With like he doesn't even use that skill. He never uses a lightsaber in that movie uh, again. Nevertheless, he's not being trained. He's he, being introduced to an idea, that's and not he true. is the chosen one trained. of that idea. He is he's not, not the chosen one. That is totally not true. That is you, that's like Minicorians. You've been watching the prequels. He is not the chosen one in Star Wars. He Luke? is Luke is not the chosen one in Star Wars. That's what Star Wars is all about. No, that, it is not. I mean, he it's is eventually no Vader way who the brings chosen one. Balance. He is no, a farm thinking, boy. He but is he is a the son boy. of the big bad. Not in Star he, Wars. But well, okay, but like eventually it comes. It comes. Yeah. Back. Okay. So okay, I, I I've dinged you on this before, so I'll take you on your own terms. Yes, in in terms of that movie without. Reference to any movie outside of itself, you're right. He's just a farm boy, and he's been introduced to this thing. Um, however, I, I I just think and he's put some work into it, he, and he he learns what he's doing, and but he, he never chooses, uses it at all. He from chooses between then 
and the Death Star. He never uses it at all. He doesn't use the Force when they're running around the Death Star, which probably no. a bad script uh, note giver would say, like, well, he trained in it here. What if in the Death Star he, like, uses the Force to move something around? You, you know, that wouldn't and, and be bad. It that would be. That could work just fine. It would be. But it, would be bad. It, it certainly works fine without it. But It's uh, thrilling because he's an amateur. Yeah, I agree. There's, there's an element of that. Like, this is the first test, and so he is being tested on something that he has not mastered. That makes it in some ways more thrilling than if he had mastered it. It's grace. He didn't earn it. I think he does earn it. It's an unmerited gift from the gods. I think he does earn it. I don't think it's an unmerited gift from the gods. I think Raiders Lost Ark, clearly an unmerited gift from the gods. I mean, he earns it just a little bit by closing his eyes. Mm -hmm. I certainly think Get Out, it's pretty much an unmerited gift. Um, I mean, again, I feel like irony is such an important part of it. In Get Out, it's ironic that this quality of his ends up helping him. And that's why... It works. Yeah, I, actually, it's funny you should mention Get Out because for Get Out, I feel the climactic thing that which makes my point is not so much that, even though even though that was how we started. That's this how whole we started thing. the conversation. However, it's when he's worked very hard. He's he's got his girlfriend defeated. The house is like burning in the background. He's gotten out, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and then a police car shows up. Like, no. oh no, this is never good for somebody who's black. And then miracle, touch of the gods, something that he didn't do anything. Yeah. To make happen. It's not it's like his he, friend. It's not like he it's managed to escape long enough to call right. yeah. Rod or anything right. like it's, that. It, so it's, it's not any cleverness of his own. Right. And that's why it's a stand up and cheer moment. That's right. Everybody will remember the end of Get Out, that moment. We all remember that moment. And we all remember Luke turning off the, the computer. And we all remember the end of Rare's Lost Ark. But nobody really can tell you what is the ending of The Incredibles. I'm not saying you have to have this kind of climax. However, if you want your climax to be truly memorable, there's this moment of the gift of the gods that makes you leap up and cheer and remember it forever. I just don't... I would not describe Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone that way. I think that Rowling, for all of her genius and wonderfulness, I think that endings were not her strong suit. They always felt a little unearned through all seven books and, Mm -hmm. and were not as satisfying to me as they could have been. I think that people love those books because of so many reasons. I think they're a wonderful concept. I think they're wonderful characters. I think that the first three books have wonderful mystery plots. I think the plotting is not very strong in the next four books. But I think that plotting the finales is never, I think, her strong suit. And I think that it is somewhat unsatisfying to have Quirrell not be able to touch him, to have Quirrell just essentially go like, no, I'm going to attack and kill you, and I've, you know, I've caught you, I'm here, I'm going to attack and kill you, and oh no, your skin dissolves me, I'm dying. Well, there's a deeper You're ma- me. magic to it, which is yeah. not just like, the Harry's just so powerful, it's that, it's the love of his mother, yeah. right? And it's, it's, um, and it's the, it's this deeper magic, it's kind of like in uh, the Narnia books, like in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's that one, the chapter is called, like, the magic from the the beginning of the world and then the next cha- when that's when they kill Aslan and then uh-huh. the next chapter is called the magic from before the beginning of the world that's right. when he comes back to life there's kind of this magic from before the beginning of the world aspect to it about Harry the, like having that thing on him that Quirrell can't touch and also it's Harry's pure heartedness and like he's not solving problems at that point just drops into his pocket because he's a good person. Yeah, um, and, and I think that works. I think the idea that you got the stone because that was what you wanted, it sort of re- mirrors the sorting hat, although we don't really find out to later books the degree to which he was able to affect the sorting hat. But mm-hmm. what he wanted, you know, we find out in later books that the sorting hat wanted to put him in Slytherin, but because he chose Gryffindor, he got put in Gryffindor, sort of mirrored by the mirror when Quirrell sees what he wants to do with the stone, whereas Harry just wants the stone itself, and that's why he gets mm-hmm. it. And I think that works. I think 
I think it works. I don't think it works very well that you don't understand that's what's happening at the time, and Dumbledore mm-hmm. has to explain it later. I think that's mm-hmm. one aspect okay, of yeah, I mean, the, Rowling's awkward... I would awkward, not say that they... I think that's one aspect of Rowling's awkward plotting is that often climax will happen very quickly, and then you're like, wait, what just happened? And, and, then, and then, then you're sitting in the infirmary, and <laughs> Dumbledore's in, talking to you. In the infirmary, Dumbledore will explain, like, oh, here's what happened. And it's yeah. like, oh, okay. It's because they're mysteries. Yeah. And so you have to have, like, the, the detective gather everybody up and say, what really happened? Yeah. So one of our commenters in the blog said something interesting. is It's kind of like the seal of the hero the deus ex machina can be actually a prize story value like you can't just be the one by wanting it and training morpheus had one job and it wasn't to train to be the one it was to find the one and neo was always the one you can hunt womp rats all day but you can't make that shot unless the universe deems you worthy the hero is the guy who realizes the universe is working through him and is right a lot of guys think they're the hero and they train real hard and they believe themselves worthy of the universe end up splattered on the cosmic windshield like so many bugs that's yes. every other every other x-wing fighter was also probably a farm boy or somebody like that or somebody went through academy or whatever and they all got splattered but here is the but hero they, because they, they use their targeting computers if gold leader uh-huh. had not had turned off his targeting computer he still would have failed it's not as the force is waiting for one person to do it only luke could have done it because that is not true that luke is not is true the... anyone could have turned off their targeting computer trusted the force if they had some training no, in the force. that's not how star wars You're, works this, that's not how the prequels work no no you've no, been no, watching the prequels no no empire much. strikes back about midichlorians no, no but no i don't the empire strikes back when you learn that he's his father that darth vader is his father you're but like oh my still, god but even in nowhere in the original trilogy is there some sense that well, I mean, I guess that's not Luke true. has his abilities because he's the son of Darth Vader. It's, I, a, it's a Force family. You have it. Like, I have it. My father has it. And my sister has yeah, it. I guess by Return the time of the Jedi, the come third, on. By the time you get to Return of the Jedi, it's, you have this idea, which I don't like as much. I like the idea that, you know, that anyone can be trained in the Force, which, ironically, well, you, they get back to at the very end of Last Jedi. I love <laughs> Last Jedi so, is the first time since, I love the democratization since Return of, the, of the, the Jedi. Since Return of the Jedi, Last Jedi is the first time we got some indication that you don't have to have the last name Skywalker if you want to be good at this. <laughs> I, one thing I said is that I feel like the more people watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, the more it bothers them that it's a Deus Ex I disagree. I think that a lot of people, they realize at some point, Oh, if Indiana had done nothing, things probably would have turned out better Almost than nobody if he had done something. People, go on the internet, Kevin James. Smithy kind of the people. The internet exists. Check it out sometime. It's amazing. Almost, most most people don't think about Raiders of the Lost Ark that deeply. They just get swept away by it, and they love it. Yeah, I agree. But then people start thinking about it. They're like, wait just a second. I feel like at some point, people watch that movie over and over again. And instead of just getting caught up in the truck chase and in everything else going on, they're like, wait a second, what did he even do in this movie? And then they sour on the movie a little bit. I, I, I disagree. And also the controlling thing here is they watch the movie again and again. Yeah. The reason oh, they yeah. watch the movie again and again is because they are activated by this touch of the divine thing. And then I they disagree. think about it too much and they get too <laughs> clever and they decide to be like a Kevin Smith character sitting in a video store talking about things and overthinking stuff, which almost nobody does. Just like a bunch of like, you know, maybe some, you know, people who work in video stores or live in big cities would like to talk about these things. But most people just love these movies. And the reason they love it is because they touch something not clever in us. They touch a deep longing in us and you don't get there through cleverness and you don't get there through hard work. I think there's two versions of this that I want to talk about. Yeah, I, uh-huh. I feel because I, 
now that I've talked about it in general, I want to kind of maybe make it a, more, a little more precise. Yeah, that's it. Um, so there's two different claims. One is that the hero must work hard and use their skills to get to the climax. But at the moment of climactic truth, everything comes down to a unique, involuntary, but essential property of the hero. Or, here's a different version, the hero must work hard and use their skills to get to the climax. But at the moment of climactic truth, the hero benefits from a moment of divine grace. What's, so what's the difference between those two? So in many stories, the final crucial action is multivalent enough that it can be described by both one and two at once. That's like Star Wars. It's an involuntary property that he has that the Force is with him. Mm-hmm. The, Vader even says, the Force is strong in this one. Yeah. So you can't say it could have been any X-Wing fighter pilot. I guess. Vader recognizes the Force is strong with Luke. Yeah. Okay, But sometimes it's just one or the other, and sometimes it's neither, yeah. you know, with the Incredibles or whatever, which is fine. Yeah. I'm just talking about this particular kind of pro- climax that we remember. Right. Um, so, so Star Wars is both kinds, but some are just one or the other. Explain. The hero must work hard and use his skills to get to the climax, and everything comes down to unique, involuntary, but essential property, would be Harry Potter. Right. Um, that's no, there's no moment of divine grace there. Mm-hmm. It, it's simply... A, unique and voluntary but essential property that he has that his mother loved him enough that she died for him right um and that he's pure-hearted enough to get the stone a version of divine grace would be the end of the dark crystal okay which Um, i've never seen but okay i know you are a man of error i was exactly the right age for it when it came out too i just i it was hard to get my parents to take me to kids films and we never did it's just never did it's a controlling movie of my life Okay. Um, did you see my Halloween costume? Uh, you were amazing. Uh, James and his daughter went as, I believe they're called Skeksises yeah. or Skeksis for Halloween, and it was amazing. At the end, the, the crystal, there's a shard that's missing from the crystal. Mm-hmm. The Gelflings, Jen and Kira. Kira is dying. One of the uh-huh. Skeksis has stabbed Kira. She's dying. He leaps. He puts the shard into the dark crystal. The, uh-huh. dark, the crystal is whole again, the crystal of truth. At that moment, the mystics, who've been, who are these other characters, are the opposite. The Skeksis are coming into the palace, and they're very gentle. The Skeksis uh-huh. are very vicious. And at that moment, when this crystal is healed, the Skeksis and the mystics combine to become one creature. Each of them, the, each, each Skeksis and each mystic can, corresponds with another. Uh-huh. And they become this otherworldly creature called the Ur-Skex. And But, like... Jen doesn't almost doesn't care. He's crying over his the other Gelfling who's dying, who's shared this adventure with, and, and then um, the the Urskex kind of heal her. They they they've, they've seen him as worthy. Mm-hmm. They, there's this moment of like kind of otherworldly grace, and then they disappear, and they're gone. So the Skeksis and the Mystics are gone. It's just the humans again. It's just the Gelflings. We will give you the divine favor now. Because yeah. you have passed the test. But he reunited the crystal. I mean, Right, but they, when, when it didn't even matter anymore for him. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it occurs to me, I did read the novelization of that book as a child. Okay. <laughs> um, while I was at camp, while I was at sleepaway camp. But um, I love it. Something that gets a lot of its charm from the fact that it's puppeteering. Yes. <laughs> and you decide... I'm going to bypass that. <laughs> One of the most famous puppets in America was the star of a radio program. You know, it's a it's a weird world. <laughs> and by the way, I, I highly recommend the Netflix yes. uh, a prequel series. It's flawless. I feel flawless. it's flawless. Uh, it's that's so awesome. Good. So I think I'm getting it, what these things are, the sort of variations. Should we... Um, can, can I, yes. Can I talk about a couple other versions yes. of it? Okay. Frozen. Okay. Anna throws herself to save her sister in front of the, the descending sword of the Prince Hans. Prince Hans. She turns to ice. And she, then she comes back to life after Elsa cries over her. Because yes. only an act of true love can thaw a frozen heart. They always thought it was Anna's 
heart that was frozen, but it was actually it's Elsa's heart that needed to be frozen. But it's like some weird magic takes over at that point. The, yeah. the, the hero commits himself in a irreversible manner, just some course of action mm-hmm. that gets him into deep trouble and only something divine or magic gets them out of it. Certainly it's not a skill of Anna's that gets her out of it. Exactly. It's, it's, she is saved not due to a skill, but due to... She's saved due to a choice, but she... It's ironic. She thinks that she is giving up on true love. She thinks that instead of kissing Kristoff, mm-hmm. which would be an, an act of true love, I will save my sister and doesn't yeah. realize that that is the real act of true love. Exactly. So it is... She chooses to lose and ironically does not realize that that is the way to win. Sometimes the judger is not the universe. Sometimes it's another character. Often in a love story, it's the other character. In The Graduate, when uh, Dustin Hoffman's character runs to the church and makes a scene, Uh she could just say, I'm going to go on with my marriage. But do you see? And she makes the decision. He's put himself in the hands of the divine, the divine just being her at this moment and, and then and they get away although I hate that ending when they're just in the bus and he doesn't even well, look at her how did you hate that ending because I've always hated it because it doesn't that's not how people work that is not he doesn't true. even look at her he, they get in the that's back of the bus that's how he works he looks back and, and, she, and she keeps looking over at him and he doesn't even look at her and it he's always, a terrible human being okay but I've, <laughs> the, I, I've always hated it I, I just it's I my love case. that I think it's okay. one of the all time great endings uh, uh, and okay, I okay. totally I totally disagree with about The Graduate like The Graduate there's no moment of grace or moment of the divine in The Graduate no no it's, it's not to, I'm trying to take this idea uh-huh. of the divine and kind of try to apply it to different situations in which it's not the divine but here's something that's analogous to it or congruent with it and here it's like the, the, the decision is out of the hero's hands, and yeah. it's in the hands of somebody else. Similarly in Ratatouille, they finally make the, and they give it to the critic, right? Yes. They make the Ratatouille, and then he judges that they have succeeded. You've done as hard as you can, uh-huh. and then you give up to something higher. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not saying that this is, I, I'm trying to give analogous and congruent cases. I'm not saying these are other examples of the same thing. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? And sometimes you can fail, and that's still a valid work of art. In Twin Peaks Season 2, Mm-hmm. the best FBI agent in the world goes into the Black Lodge, Dale Cooper. Everything we've seen about him so far is that he's perfectly pure-hearted, perfectly brave, uh, perfectly kind. Mm-hmm. And he's told, if you go into there with even a sliver of fear in your soul, you will be destroyed. And he is destroyed. Mm-hmm. He comes out, Killer Bob is in him, and season two memorably ends with Dale Cooper smashing his head against a mirror saying, where's Annie, where's, where's Annie? Annie? Where's Annie, where's um, yes. and, and And so sometimes the god can say no. Yeah. Like at the end of the third man, he's gone through all this stuff. He, he's waiting by the side of the road. I'm going to get out of the car. I'm going to make an irreversible action. I'm going to wait for this woman who I love. And she walks, walks right, right by, by him. him. And so you can fail this test. Yeah. It, um, and But that still is satisfying on some level? It is satisfying because the test was undertaken. So you think that the fact that Holly Martin submits himself to judgment by this woman who then rejects him gives shows a certain... Luke Skywalker like putting away the targeting computer and closing his eyes. Yes, because the other guy who's driving him to wherever he was going, the airport, said, "Oh, this plane is leaving soon, or whatever." Yeah. He drives away. Yeah, he's left behind. Yeah, and then she walks by him. He doesn't run up to her and say, right. "Hey, what?" Are...? He just stands there, and after she walks by him, <laughs> he lights a cigarette and then he immediately throws it away. <laughs> That's the end of the third man. He submits himself to the divine or to her. You know, or to, to whatever the judging mechanism is. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that these are simple. What I'm saying with Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars, I'm just saying they're analogous, they're congruent, and it's something that's worth looking at. Yeah. Because he's not using a skill at that point. When they're giving it up to 
Anton Ego in Ratatouille, they've done all the skill they can do, but then they give them the thing and they just have to sit back and just accept. So in, in all these cases, Star Wars or Ratatouille or The Third Man, they're giving away their power. They're saying, yes. like, at some point I submitted myself to judgment. Mm-hmm. And whether I am judged worthy or unworthy, that the viewer will be happy that the hero has stopped, paused, put the targeting computer away, and given themselves up to judgment. And in a, a happy story, they are found worthy. In a unhappy story or a tragic ending, they are found unworthy. Yeah. But that, but that either way, it's it's satisfying to the audience for the same reason. Because stories are an atavistic remnant of religion. Um, and these are, this totally is judgment. Disagree. This is judgment. <laughs> yes. And, and it's, it's a judgment of the audience. It's a judgment of the universe. It's a judgment of the storyteller. And just in the same way that Christian theology ends in judgment, stories end in judgment. Yeah. Well, I mean, like... It's just like the, the Christian story of Jesus dies on the cross. He says, into, into, your, into your hands I commend my spirit. He dies. He's given himself up to this higher power. And then three days later, it worked. He comes back. Well, I mean, but Jesus is given the is given the special gizmo that will get him off the cross early on in the Bible, oh my and God. then, what's and that then gizmo? he's got it. He's what's, got it hidden. What's the gizmo? He's got hidden underneath the, the fact crown that he's of thorns. the son of God. He's got it hidden underneath the crown of thorns the whole time, and then he very cleverly uses it <laughs> to get away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think yeah. that's pretty satisfying as yeah, an yeah. audience <laughs> member to see him I'm pull about, out his special skills. Yeah, exactly. The deepest level of storytelling is religious. Fundamentally. No, it's not. Yes, but. it is. And if you doubt me, then why do religions persist? And why are religions always narrative-based? They're not based on a bunch of rules. They're always based on some story that people find extremely compelling. Yeah. I feel like the reason I enjoy stories is I enjoy watching people solve problems. I feel like that's the fundamental reason people enjoy stories, is to watch people solve problems. But in all these things I've said, and usefully, in these climaxes, people are not solving problems. They're giving their they power are solving problems. to a higher power. Woody, they're not doing problem solving at that moment. In these moments if, that I've been talking about, Woody, they're not problem solving. They're giving themselves up. Uh, if Woody had said, you know, I'm just going to hang out at Andy's house and I'm no, sure they God will park me up point. off the bed I'm, no, I'm in sorry. Andy's they, car. No, that, you, you, you know that you are mischaracterizing what I'm saying. Say they work hard <laughs> to put themselves in God's presence and yeah. then God makes a judgment. Yeah. You, you, go, you go 90. You can get yourself 90% of the way and then, and then you have to give yourself up. Uh, let go and let God do the final 10%. And, and again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying God really. Just because I'm using the yeah. language like the finger of God or divine grace doesn't mean I'm actu- invoking actual religion. I'm talking yeah. about the way stories work. And, and, I th- and, my, and my further claim, which you might reject, is that it's because there's always an atavistic shadow of religion in the background of stories. But um, so can, I, can I talk about an interesting variation? Yes. What's an interesting variation? You should do a checklist of that thing you do. Uh-huh. Which I've, I've never seen. Favorite movies of all time. Uh-huh. I love it so much. So at the end of that this thing was, you do... This was Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Wrote and directed it about a one-hit wonder band in the 1960s. Yes, exactly. Which, at first, they called themselves The Wonders, O-N-E-D-E-R-S. Mm-hmm. The, the name of the band is The Wonders, but everybody calls them The O-Neaters. <laughs> there's so many great things about this. So anyway, our hero is this drummer, Guy. He idolizes a jazz pianist named Del Paxton. And he joins this band, The Wonders, and his contributions, because he's so into jazz, he's a really good drummer catalyze the band and it catalyzes their rise to the top and the end the band implodes mm-hmm. after they have their big moment on tv when they've gotten all the success they could get on the equivalent of the ed sullivan show um and in the end guy is left in the recording studio alone like everybody else leaves 
mm-hmm. uh, and then Tom Hanks' character, who is like the person who's like signed them up to the company, is like you're in breach of contract. And earlier in the movie, uh, Guy had met in a bar briefly, Del Paxton, uh-huh. the, his hero. And then he's in this studio. He's like, all everything has just gone to shit. And then Del Paxton wanders into the room. He happens to be this old famous jazz man. Happens to be in the same studio at the time doing something else. And and he says, well, let's just jam. Mm-hmm. And Guy gets to jam with Del Paxton. Del Paxton's on the piano. Guy's on playing the drums. And it's an utterly touched by God moment. It's an unmerited moment of grace. This is what Guy really wanted. He didn't mm-hmm. really care about being in a band. He just wanted to jam with Del Paxton. He didn't even know he knew that. Now, after this scene that goes on and the, the, the love story is wrapped up, that he gets together with um, Liv Tyler. There's a moment in which the God, in, in this one, of the maybe every story has its own god in ratatouille it's anton ego who's a merciless god well Well, but i would say brad bird despises anton ego like i mean i would say well some i despise the old testament god it it doesn't mean doesn't make a compelling character in the old testament i mean i'd say the whole point of ratatouille is Mm -hmm. that critics are awful i mean you know this is to dethrone a god yeah okay so sometimes it can be about dethroning the god sometimes it can be it's sort of almost they make god submit to them at, at the, you know, yeah. it's like this guy has set himself up to be a god. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this very libertarian filmmaker who despises the whole idea of critics. They wind up literally belittling Anton Ego. They mm-hmm. turn him into a child. He suddenly yeah. transforms into a child, <laughs> eating the ratatouille dish as a child, mm-hmm. and then finds he has lost all his, I guess not lost all his power, because he still has the power to turn this into a successful No, he does lose tour, all of his power. But... He, because he's recommended a restaurant that's run by rats, he <laughs> yes. loses his job, yeah. and then he becomes an investor in the new restaurant. Yes. Uh, um, so, so they, here you have, I mean, I would assume Brad Bird's an atheist. He's, he's a hardcore mm-hmm. libertarian. I would assume that this is someone who is saying they submit themselves up to judgment and they prove that God is phony. They, they get judge God, the judgment. They get God to himself prove that he is phony. They get God to yeah. admit that he is phony and step down from his throne. This is an interesting variation. This is so, an interesting So what we're variation. talking about is variations now. Yeah. So th- th- that thing you do is a variation. Yeah. You, you get to play with God. Yeah. For a moment, it, it's 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 a moment of absolute joy. It like brings me to tears almost every time. Like it would be like, oh, would you like to write with Ray Bradbury? You, yeah. you, know, you know what I mean? It, it just feels so good. You you know how much this guy kind of admires him, yeah. um, and respects him, and the fact that he gets to do this. It's more joyous than any moment when he's on stage with the Wonders, right? Well, uh, and I- deeper. Okay, so I can, think that can I say a borderline case? Okay, what's a borderline case? Silence of the Lambs. No, absolutely not. Can I convince you? No, but you can try. So Clarice Starling is stuck in a pitch dark yes. basement. Yeah. Is it, and I feel like these moments of grace, Fortuna herself, not Luck, but Fortuna comes in and puts her thumb on a scale. A god named Luck does it. Uh-huh. Buffalo Bill is approaching her with his night vision ga- goggles. He's enjoying watching her panic in the dark. She can't see him. He can see her. We see Clarice has worked very hard to get to this point. Now they're both in this chthonic hell world of darkness it's just her versus the enemy i think i think a lot of times it gets to that point it's like one versus one uh-huh. at the top of a mountain it's morality versus holmes you know right. and, and then the god makes a judgment on who lives and who dies it's a mere stroke of luck that she hears the quiet click of buffalo bill's gun she whirls around she shoots she happens to shoot him yeah. and kill him dead um, Which now, is something we saw her train to do and fail to do in training. Yes. It's an action so rapidly, it's essentially a reflex. 
Although Clarice had that reaction because she was highly trained, it's such a swift and decisive reaction. It almost feels like a reflection of her fundamental character, like they, an involuntary and essential thing about her. Oh, deep down, she truly is the pro-FBI agent that, that yeah. she always wanted to be and not a mere acquired skill. Like it feels like in this holy or unholy darkness, like an essential truth about her is revealed that she could whirl around and do that that quickly. So you're saying she's the chosen one too. I, I'm saying that I really don't like no, chosen one. Okay, but I'm saying I this like is a vocabulary one. that is religious that I think can help us get to certain conclusions right. when we're doing storytelling. We don't have to say that Clarice Starling is a chosen one. But however, if we're constructing a story, say like in this mythical level. You know, yeah. in, with, with like she is the knight and, and he is the dragon. You, you know, we can use some. And I know you don't like that kind of language either. <laughs> but we can use that kind of way to feel our way towards the correct way to do the story. And if she was just using pure skill, it's almost like Ripley turning her back on the alien. Right. There, there is some thing of it. It's not just her working hard, being clever, and using her skills. There is an I'm aspect. An it, yeah, okay. but, but something more than luck. It feels like I want to say more like I want to say Fortuna putting her fingers in the scale. Like yeah. she has worked so hard. Now at the end, the audience, the storyteller, whoever, God comes in and says, "You earned it. You earned it." Yeah. I mean, I guess you know when you mentioned Silence of the Lambs, I'm like, I'm like, no way. Like I've seen that movie a million times. There is no moment of grace. There is no moment of the divine. But I mean, if we're gonna define it this broadly. I guess I can sort of see what you're saying. That there is a moment of like, you know, because I mean, there sort of has it could have to gone be, either way. There has, very easily. That's an interesting point. There has to be a moment of. I think there does, and this is something people do talk about. There has to be a moment of it has. It can go either way. Yes. Okay. And maybe that's what I'm getting. It's sort of. At. It's sort of inherent in that. If there's a moment of even after all they know and have done, it can go either way. Then. By definition, there has to be an element of luck in every in every time someone succeeds. But if, I, we if can't we call really it luck. Want, if it, we it really can't be want, mere luck. Can't be mere luck. Yes, a moment of grace of, of grace where they succeed, even though they could have failed at the last second. That's classic storytelling advice. Make things as hard as you can on your hero, and you've got to you know have them. If we can tie this all the way back around to Total Recall. Uh-huh. which we were talking about last yes. episode. That I didn't mention that part of it before, but when I was praising Get Out, I was contrasting it with Total Recall. Yes. Where Total Recall, there's this moment, this is an extreme example of everything the hero has done has been all part of the villain's plan. That Ronnie Cox concocted this massively complex plan where the hero would think he was doing all these heroic things, and really it was all a very elaborate trap to have Quaid bring in the mutant leader, and then Quaid would then be restored to his original personality and it would all work out. The villain has thought of everything, but there's one thing the villain hasn't thought of and the thing he hasn't thought of is basically that Quaid will lift his arm that it's that I that you said Quaid. this in the blog and I disagree it's not that he lifts his arm you make it sound like an effortless <laughs> thing the reason that it's powerful is that you see Arnold trying so hard it's right. the very edge of his strength that he can manage this at all Which you is see the veins bulging on his and <laughs> yeah. he's like Argh! and while he's being zapped I think at the same time he's like using all the strength and he just barely gets it out and then even after that he uses the bolts that he's pulled yeah, out which is awesome. to gore the people in the <laughs> neck and so he's being clever but it's yeah. also this strong guy here's something that almost defeated even that strength. But the bad guy... He didn't just... You, you say he lifted his arm. And you are you're <laughs> trying to use I'm, his rhetorical I'm device. Puckish. I feel like it's one rule that I was able to divine from that while you were going off on your wild flights of fancy about <laughs> Moment of Grace. Uh, 
on the vlog, I was like, okay, well, let's let's go ahead and figure out why it worked better in Get Out. Both cases where you're two-thirds of the way in the movie and the hero is tied to a chair. And mm-hmm. in both cases, there's one thing the villain didn't think of. And in one case, it's more satisfying than in the other case. And so I said, I think there is a hierarchy here. The villain could have underestimated the hero physically, mm-hmm. which is what happens in Total Recall. And I think that is the least satisfying the hero because mind you, he's been working with a jackhammer all the yeah. time. That he's a, so that builds up As your arm muscles. The villain can underestimate the hero physically. The villain can underestimate the hero mentally, which is to a certain extent what's going on in Get Out because he figures out about the cotton, which is better than just struggling really hard to get out. You know, he figures out this clever thing with the cotton. Or one thing that's the case in neither is that, but could have been the case in Total Recall is it could have been the case that the villain was underestimating the hero morally mm-hmm. because Ronnie Cox is still thinking of. Quaid of Arnold Schwarzenegger's character as a bad guy who's just temporarily a good guy. Mm -hmm. But he does not realize how much Arnold Schwarzenegger's character has responded to being a good guy and has learned and grown. And that I think that you could have tweaked it a little bit to make it like a sorting hat type moment. Oh, we're going to give you the opportunity to do what you really want to do, which is become a become terrible Quaid again, become a bad guy again. And then he has a moment of like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to choose. I'm going to give this up. Maybe get to the moment where they're in the middle of converting him and he has some sort of moral choice again. And then he switches. The villain can underestimate the hero physically or mentally or, you know, spiritually. Okay, I think we've gotten off on a tangent here. But for the most part, you've convinced me. You had already beat me sort of into believing in this on the blog, and I had already beat you down in the blog a little bit in terms of going like, okay, here's 10 counterexamples. You cannot claim mm-hmm. that this is something that every story has or needs. Nope. And I think you had already sort of conceded that before you arrived. I'll that see this that is ground. not something that every story has or needs. However, I, I do feel that the, the climaxes that we remember are these kind of climaxes. Yeah, I... Doesn't mean it could be... A, we'll remember The Incredibles. We just won't remember the climax. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far. I feel like everyone remembers the ending of Alien and Silence of the Lambs. And, that and I just convinced it's, you it's that a, they are... No, you did not convince me. I feel like those are both but big, they're congruent with my idea. <laughs> uh, they're adjacent. Um, but, uh, okay. But I think this is. I think this has been a good episode. I think that we are now not going to do a free story idea and then we're going to go ahead and hopefully tonight maybe uh, soon we'll go ahead and record the next episode where we finally pick up on the free story idea from last episode we're, we're very much tying everything together like last episode we talked about total recall and minority report this episode we've talked about total recall and next episode we're going to pick up on the idea from minority report so it's it's all basically you can never just start listening to our podcast you <laughs> you have to start from episode one because there's and get through the Leica episode <laughs> get through the Leica episode have constant callbacks to previous episodes but i think this has been a good topic i think this is new i think this is not in any of the writing books this is the stuff that i want to bring to it like this or character passivity or the lord raglan stuff these are the points that i bring this is the value i add to this podcast i have often wondered that i i've been you out there in america if you can explain to me the value that james brings to the podcast i invite you to submit possible i'm gonna bring in the outre points that are hard to quantify and hard to defend and are counterintuitive, and yet I can bring you around to them. It's pronounced outre? Yeah, it's a French word. Okay. Outre. Well, how would you pronounce it? I, I outre? Gu- I, I guess outre. I don't know. Outre, I'm, it's French. I, so here's the thing is, you know, when you refer to someone who uh, reads a lot of words and doesn't get to hear them spoken out loud. Well, maybe and it's learns, outre. When, I don't know. when you refer to someone who is the word for someone who only knows words from having read them and has never heard them spoken out loud and doesn't know how to pronounce them is autodidact. And... I was so much of an autodidact that I always pronounced the word autodidact wrong. 
<laughs> I thought it was autodictat, like you were dictating to yourself. <laughs> but wait, that, you're not even getting the letters. I wasn't even pronouncing it wrong. I was yeah. just shuffling the letters yeah. around in my head, but I just read the word, and I'm like, oh, I'm like an autodictat. I'm someone who is dictating to himself you know these what? things, I'm... and people are like, no, man, the word is autodidact, <laughs> and you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. You, you know, I think I got to, it must be outre, because, because outre would be like E-E with like an accent on like, on like the first E. So maybe it's outre, and maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. I have no idea, but uh, this is, it's wonderful value you're bringing. Okay, America, this has been... My French ability, in particular. This has been another wonderful episode of the Secrets of Story podcast. James, do you have any uh, final comments? Yeah, I hope you all enjoy the new logo that I made. Oh, yes. So James made a logo, which I agreed to put up temporarily. So uh, if you're listening to this five years from now, you probably won't see it because I think we've got a beautiful logo designed by the designer of my book. But James made a more traditional podcasty image of the two of us fighting, and it is funny to look at. Using so Mortal it Kombat. will. Our it heads will are put appear on Mortal Kombat bodies. Our heads on Mortal Kombat bodies. So be sure to check that out. You can see, I think you'll find that our looks are disappointing. Okay. I so, great. all right, guys, we will see you soon. Maybe, hopefully, sooner than soon. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Head and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.